Amen. Well, the scripture reading this morning is from Ruth chapter 2. We just started a series of sermon on the book of Ruth. This morning we're looking at Ruth chapter 2. We're reading the first 17 verses. It's the reading of God's word. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field, glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reaper, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back from, with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. She's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean to, in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field and they, that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged a young man not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother, your native land, and came to a people you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. Spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some of your bundles for her. Leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Amen. That's a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It's a light. It's a lamp. It's, a, it's our hope to know your heart, to know your will, to know your desires for us. So I pray this morning we would know that your heart is filled with mercy. Help us to see that and experience that and taste that this morning as we come to see you. Speak to us now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you just joined us, we started, started a new series of sermons on the book of Ruth. I'm really excited about. And last week, we looked at Ruth. And, you know, Ruth is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. And I love Ruth because she defies every kind of conventional role that women have. A lot of people think women in the Bible, they're, they're fit into this nice little neat, quiet box. They're very passive. They're waiting on a man. But what we see is Ruth, is she explodes all these categories we, kind of, we think of in terms of femininity, in terms of a woman. 
Ruth is the hero of her own story. She defies convention. She is a woman filled with faith. She's bold. She's courageous. She steps out. She takes risks. Ruth, Ruth exemplifies what we talked about last week, which is the Hebrew word hesed. And we said that word hesed is a key word, and there's no simple translation for it. Uh, hesed is the idea of loyalty and love. It's a loyal love. We call that word love without an exit plan. It's an unconditional, I'm with you to the very end. I'm never going to leave you. And Ruth exemplifies this life of love. This morning what we're going to look at is a subset of love. Love is a broad, hesed is a broad idea. So we're going to look at one aspect of love, which is mercy. Mercy is love, especially for people who are vulnerable, people who need help. Mercy is something that God commands for all of his people. And what we're going to look at this morning is mercy is something that characterizes God himself. God's heart beats and is full of mercy. And this morning, so as we look at that idea of mercy, we're just going to look at three things. Who needs mercy? Secondly, how do we practice mercy? Finally, what's the source of mercy? Those three things. And the first thing we're going to look at is who needs mercy. Last week, we looked at the story of Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Naomi has come back to Bethlehem. It's her hometown. She left Bethlehem for Moab 10 years ago. She was, 10 years ago, she left for Moab. She was young. She was hopeful. She was filled with the Spirit. But she's come back all these years later, 10 years later, and she's completely different. She's a broken woman. She's lost her husband in Moab. She lost her two sons in Moab. And she's essentially come back to Bethlehem to die. She's without hope except the fact that she has a woman named Ruth, a daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law who has come to be with her. Ruth has made this tremendous sacrifice because she's leaving her hometown, her home country, probably the prospect of marriage. We don't know that yet. But she's willing to sacrifice all of that because she wants to save, in some sense, her mother-in-law. She's got love for her mother-in-law. And she's with her. Things look bleak, but when they finally get to Bethlehem, there's good news. This is the beginning of good news. The good news starts breaking in. They're there right at the right moment. God has placed them at the right exact time because it's harvest time. It's harvest time. This would be a period in the season in which food would be plentiful. People would be happy. There would be celebrations happening during the beginning of the season. People would be drinking beer. That's what uh, they do with barley even in those times. They'd be craft beer that they'd be drinking. People would be happy. They'd be celebrating basically during the season. So they're there right at the right time, right at the right moment. Ruth and Naomi are present in Bethlehem. And right at this right moment, this is a great moment because at harvest season, uh, uh, Ruth, this young woman, would be allowed to glean. It's an important idea in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, in ancient Israel, all the landowners during harvest times were required to leave the edges of their field unharvested. They're to leave it for the poor, for widows, for people who are destitute. 
They're to leave that for them. They also could not, by law, pick up any barley or grain that was dropped on the ground. All of those things were for classes of people who were destitute. Uh, They were the ancient version of food stamps. It was a way that the poor can have something to eat. Now, gleaning was hard work. You had to do a whole lot to get very, very little. If you wanted to glean and subsist on gleaning, it was like trying to make a living out of collecting aluminum cans. You had to go out to all the street corners. You had to go out to all the trash cans, collect all of them. It's barely enough to get something to eat. Ruth decides that's the route she's going to take because that's the only route she has. She tells her mother-in-law, I'm going out to glean. Going out. Naomi blesses her. And as she takes the field, you have to know she's taking a great risk. There's a lot of risks involved with Ruth going out to glean. Why is that? Well, first, even though by law she was allowed to glean, in practice, a lot of green, greedy landowners didn't allow gleaners. They would often be harassed. They would be ridiculed. Some would be physically harmed. Secondly, Ruth is in danger because she's a foreigner. Notice that throughout this chapter, and actually all throughout the book of Ruth, Ruth is called the name Ruth the Moabite. She's referred to by everyone as Ruth the Moabite, and that's kind of an interesting way to call someone. Imagine if I had someone that was around me who constantly referred to me as Dennis the Korean American every time they saw me. I'll be very annoyed by that. You know, like, why are you calling me Dennis the Korean American? Just call me by my name. You know, why are you mentioning my race? You know, if you had someone who would constantly refer to you by your name and your race, there'd be some racial, even racist overtones to that. Why is that so important? And all of that have overtones with Ruth because she was considered a foreigner. She would be considered uh, someone who, was, who didn't belong. She would be harassed because of where she was from. Third, Ruth is in danger because she's a single woman uh, without a husband. In the Old Testament, if you did not have a husband, if you were unaccompanied, you were in great danger to yourself physically and sexually. Finally, Ruth was poor. She had no resources. She had very few rights. She was destitute. Her back was up against the wall. She has no resources, no recourses. Paul Miller summarizes this idea of where Ruth is at. She says, without a male, without a male protector, Ruth is sexually vulnerable. Without money, she is financially destitute. Without a friend, she is lonely. Without her country, she is open to prejudice. She has no protector, husband, tribe, family, or food. In the list of vulnerable people, Ruth would be at the very, very bottom. All throughout the Bible, God's people were always to pay special attention and to care for classes of people that were especially vulnerable. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, there are all kinds of laws for people who are immigrants, people who are widows, and people who are orphans, because those were the classes of people that were the most vulnerable. God's people are always to pay attention. And as a faithful follower of God today, we're always to ask that question. What are the classes of people that are most vulnerable in our society? Because those are the people we are to care for. Those are the people who are especially in need of mercy. 
You know, one of the most pressing issues that vex Angelinos is the issue of homelessness. It's something that is on, has always been on my mind and heart about that issue. And, you know, various studies and scholars will point to various causes of that. Some are simple, the soaring cost of housing here in Los Angeles, mental health issues, the lack of care for them. But some are very deep and systemic and underground. One of those things is the foster care system. Uh, The foster care system is, if you didn't know it, a pipeline for homelessness. Uh, More than 25% of former foster children will become homeless within the two to four years. When they age out of the system, a quarter of them will become homeless in two to four years. Uh, When you think about half of those exiting foster care system and juvenile system will be homeless within the next six months. So when you couple that with the juvenile criminal system, these children are going to be homeless in six months. These are the most vulnerable classes of people. Second, one of the second significant factors of homelessness has to do with the race. The Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority recently issued a report that links race and homelessness. Where one in... 250 white residents uh, will be homeless, are homeless. One in 40 African Americans are. Uh, The LA Homeless Report talks about various issues of exploitation. If you're an African American woman, especially in the foster care system, you're exponentially more vulnerable to sexual uh, predators, to to human traffickers. If you're African-American male, especially in the juvenile system, you're exponentially uh, more at risk to be incarcerated. Uh, One of the things that the study recommended was that we have to address systematic issues of racism and prejudice in our system. All throughout the Bible, God's people were to think about what are the classes of people? Uh, What are the systematic injustices? Who are the most vulnerable people And how can we faithfully, prayerfully, carefully meet those needs? You know, it's easy, especially because there's so many needs around us in L.A., to become very jaded and cynical, to stop looking, to stop experiencing, and stop sensing the needs that are around us. I was um, listening to a story about a social psychologist. He tells a story. His name is Jonathan Haidt. And he was interviewing a woman on the East Coast, and she was, uh, she was sharing her experience. Uh, she had volunteered at the Salvation Army uh, one day on the East Coast uh, with her church. So a bunch of people from her church, they're volunteering at the Salvation Army. And on their way back in the afternoon, she took an Uber with four of them back, back home. They had an Uber carpool. And it had, it had snowed all morning long. And they're taking this uh, Uber back, four of them. And she says that in one neighborhood where they're passing through, they spotted an elderly woman with a shovel in her driveway. They didn't really think anything of that. But one of the guys in that Uber pool asked to be dropped off. All the people in that car thought, oh, he lives in that neighborhood. But when they looked back, this young man had walked up to this lady who he didn't know, asked her for a shovel and was starting to shovel her whole driveway. You know, when this woman saw this act, this is what she said. She said, I felt like jumping out of the car and hugging this guy. 
I felt like singing and running or skipping and laughing, just being active. I felt like saying nice things about people, writing a beautiful poem or love song. My spirit was lifted higher than it already was. I was joyous, happy, energized. I went home and gushed to my roommates who clutched at their hearts. And here was this man who just came back from volunteering, and yet on the way back, he's still looking, like, what are the needs around me? What are the areas I could be of assistance? Who are the people that I can serve? And when you live like that, it not only helps you, it energizes everyone around you. This woman who just witnessed this act was so encouraged by it that she could help gushing about it to everyone that she knew. You know, mercy is a tremendous thing that all of us are called to do. It's something that if we do it, we will be energized by it. It's something that, especially in our city, there's so much need for it. So here's the second point. How do we practice mercy? What does that look like, biblically? What does mercy look like, the practice of it? In chapter 2, we see a model of mercy, and that model is a man named Boaz. We said in chapter 1, Ruth was a model of hesed. In chapter 2, we see a specific model of a type of hesed called mercy. And that model is Boaz. Who is Boaz? Well, in verse 1, he's described as a worthy man. That word in the Hebrew means a man of social standing, of wealth, of reputation. This was not an ordinary man. He was a man of great means, a warrior, someone who had a great reputation, a wealthy landowner. He was at the top of the rung. But more than that, we read in verse 4, he was a godly man. He was a godly man. How do we see that? We see that right as he rolls into his field, how he greets his, his, uh, his workers. He rolls into the field and he says, the Lord be with you. And all of them, like in unison, said, and the Lord be with you. And, uh, you know, one of the things often for Christians is we sometimes separate our faith and our work. We're like one way Sunday, Monday, man, we change our mentality. We're killers on Monday. But Boaz, he has integrated his faith and his workplace. He sets the tone in his workplace. It's a positive environment. He blesses people in his workplace. He encourages his workers. He treats them really well. Here's a man who has integrated his faith and his work. But it's not just words that he speaks to his workers. We see it more profoundly in his actions. In verse 5 to 6, right as Boaz comes into the field, he, he greets his workers. And he asks. He notices. He's looking. Sees this woman. Has not seen her before. Boaz says in verse 5, then Boaz says to his young man, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's a young Moabite woman would come back from Naomi from the country of Moaz. Before Boaz acts, uh, he asks questions about this woman. Uh, Boaz learns the story of Ruth. Who is she? Where did she come from? What's her story? And what's critical in mercy is that we, we need to learn the story of the people that we're helping. We need to learn. A lot of people think that mercy is uh, just about giving a handout giving money, giving your time, but it's more profound than that. Mercy is about entering into the story of people. Uh, You know, I was listening to a story about a pastor who was uh, living in a city that struggled with homelessness, much like ours, 
and he was walking into a bagel shop, and he noticed there was a homeless man outside. So he thought, you know, I'm going to do something good today. So he ordered his bagel that he usually gets, and he ordered another one uh, for this man outside. And afterwards, he gave this bagel to this man, and was, you know, thinking he was going to be all grateful for this bagel. And the man said, oh, I can't. I can't eat this bagel. I need the bagel with salmon on it. And this pastor was like, who does this man think he is? You know, what are you talking about? And he paused a moment, and he asked him why that was. This man broke down to him his story, that actually he's very sick. He had a doctor tell him that, you know, salmon is very rich in omega-3s. That would help his condition. And all of a sudden, this pastor, his heart broke I was all kinds of judgmental about this person. But he started to learn his story. You know, when we learn someone's story, uh, we can help them in ways that are significant to them. Sometimes if you don't learn someone's story, you just give them things. You're not helping them because they don't need that. And you're just helping them to feel good about yourself, not to actually help them and bless them. But when you take time to get someone's story, you can see that God has this person on a journey. And you're asking the question, how can I help this person made in the image of God along the journey that God is sending them on? When you learn someone's story, you're saying, how can I help them with this place that God is bringing them? You know, Boaz is so effective at mercy because he has taken time to learn Ruth's story. God has a plan for Ruth. Amen. How can I help Ruth? along this amazing journey that God has for her. Because Boaz knows her story, he acts in ways that are very clear and helpful for her. What does Boaz do? Well, it says this in verse 8. After listening to uh, her story, Boaz says, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And where you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink. And what the young men have drawn. He gives uh, his men a series of clear instructions. Notice that it would have been easy for Boaz to say to Ruth after hearing her story, Ruth, just go glean. If you need anything, come and see me. You know, if he said that to Ruth, it would have put the onus on Ruth. Ruth had the responsibility to go to Boaz. But Boaz doesn't do that. Boaz takes the initiative. He says, Ruth, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to command all my men. He gives a series of instructions to all of his men and all of his workers in a very proactive and careful way. What does he do for her? First, he instructs the men not to lay a hand on her. One commentator put it, this is Boaz giving the first ever anti-sexual harassment policy. He sets the tone. He says, Hey, guys, any of you lay a finger on her, you're, you're answering to me. Uh, he, he gives a, a clear policy. He says, Ruth, you're going to be safe here. No one's going to harass you. None of these men are going to lay a finger on you. Secondly, he makes sure that Ruth has, would be gathering a lot of grain. Gleaning is usually picking up scraps, and you could be gleaning all day in the hot sun and have just enough for a few meals afterwards. But Boaz makes sure that Ruth is going to have a lot. In fact, not only does he uh, 
exhort Ruth to follow uh, his workers, but he tells the woman to drop bundles of grain for her. In fact, when Ruth is done gleaning, she has enough grain to last months, months for her and her mother-in-law. The most urgent need that Ruth has is food. And Boaz makes sure that she has an abundance of food for her and her mother-in-law. But finally, in a very moving scene, Boaz invites Ruth to the table. Uh, This is what it says in verse 14. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. In ancient times, sharing a meal was not just sharing food. Uh, Sharing a meal was symbolic. It was a covenant of friendship. It was bringing someone into a community. So when Boaz invites Ruth to the table, it's this powerful gesture that you're one of us now. You're part of my table. In fact, Boaz himself, the landowner, serves Ruth personally, grain. He says, have some wine. You belong to us. It's a powerful gesture. Sometimes we think of mercy as giving people stuff, but we will never give we would never invite them to our own table. But what is mercy? Mercy is not just giving our time or resources, but mercy is inviting someone to our table, inviting them into relationship with us. It's a profound act. That is, it is the essence of the gospel story of what God does for us. I was reading an article about a remarkable family, Kathy Fletcher and David Simpson, who live in Washington, D.C., And their story begins when their son, who is part of the D.C. school system, had a friend who often went to sleep hungry. So they decided that they're going to invite him over as as often as they could to have meals with them. Sometimes he would sleep over, and they got to know him. And he had other friends with kids who were going hungry. So they invited them over, and this morphed into an everyday Thursday meal where all kinds of kids for years would come and eat at their table. One Thursday night, they had 26 kids at their table eating together. Uh, Every summer, they would take around 40 kids on a vacation, a huge caravan of kids. And one simple act of opening up their table became this profound ministry. They've been doing this for years. One journalist visited these Thursday dinners And he says, before every meal, everyone would share something that they're grateful for. These teenagers would be sharing stories of like, I just passed my GED exam. Another person said that they just uh, finished bartending school. They're excited about that. They're grateful for that. One teenage woman, uh, 17-year-old, said she was pregnant now. She's grateful, but she's scared. She needs some support. He says that this gathering of of kids, one woman said, this is the warmest place on earth she's ever experienced. One man who was a founder of a nonprofit that builds community in schools said this. He said, I've been in this sector for 50 years, and I've never seen a program turn around a life. Only relationships can. And he says, you know, the thing, I've been in these all kinds of nonprofits, and programs can help people. 
But the thing that changes people is not programs, it's relationships like this. Is when you come to a table, when people invest their lives into you. What is mercy about? It's ultimately not about things, but about, it's about our hearts, about our relationships. It's about opening up our table, inviting people to our table, inviting them to be part of our lives. That's life-changing. That's, what, that's the kind of mercy that God's people are called to. Well, as we look at our final point, we know that that's hard, especially in Los Angeles. Mercy is hard. You know, open up our table to people are hard because Angelinos, man, we're busy. We have long commutes to and from work. Uh, we have, some of us have jobs that are all encompassing. We have, some of us have kids. Our three kids feel like they're 25 kids. Like we don't have room for any other things. Like where do we get the time or the energy for mercy? One of the things that uh, Ruth's question is essentially that to, to Boaz. Ruth sees everything Boaz does, and she cannot believe it. So she asks the question to, to Boaz in verse 10. Why are you doing this for me? This is extraordinary. You don't have to do this. Why are you doing this? Why me? This is what Boaz says in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband been fully told to me how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before the lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the lord the god of israel under whose wings you have taken refuge boaz says ruth i've heard your story i've entered into it i know all that things that god has you have done the sacrifice and ultimately boaz blesses her Boaz says, would God protect you? Uh, Would you find refuge under the wings of God? It's a phrase from the Psalms. Would God protect you and provide for you? Boaz realizes that what he's doing reflects the heart of God. God in the Old Testament, one of the ideas is that God owns everything, that the the land actually belongs to God, and God has all kinds of laws because he is actually the landowner and he's also the protector of the orphan, the widow, the broken, the helpless. God is a compassionate God. God loves and he cares for and he protects the most vulnerable classes of people. And Boaz is like that because he knows God's like that. Boaz is like that because he has God's heart. And the resource, the source of mercy is ultimately found in God himself. And seeing that in God, ultimately mercy is found in him. I have a son uh, who is uh, young and he's starting to get, ask a lot of questions. And he has kind of a skeptical perspective on God, you know, which I think is healthy. He doesn't just take it at face value. And he says, you know, Dad, how do I know God exists? And how, what is God like? Because God's invisible. Like, what is God like? How can we know God? And I tell them, well, you know God by looking at Jesus. You know, Jesus shows us the heart of God. What is Jesus like? Jesus was a historical person that people met and touched and experienced. What is Jesus like? You know, was Jesus angry all the time? Was he blowing up at people? Or was he a compassionate man full of mercy? 
I love reading the Gospels because it tells us about the heart of Jesus. It shows us a compassionate picture of a God-man who's filled with compassion. When the, we're talking about meals, how that was symbolic and important, who did Jesus eat with? You know, in Luke chapter 5, one in, incredible passage, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are very angry at Jesus because of who he eats with. Because they know it's more than just eating a meal. It's a sign of friendship, of solidarity, of covenant. So they're angry because Jesus eats with prostitutes, with sinners, with tax gatherers, the outcasts, those who messed up their life. Jesus says, I'll eat with you. Jesus invited the broken. He ate. His heart was filled with mercy. We talked about the infinite, the, the great distance between Boaz in terms of social, social standing. He was a landowner. Ruth would be at the very bottom. She was a widow. She was a foreigner. She was poor. People like Boaz had nothing to do with people like Ruth, but Boaz condescends. He says, I will serve you. But the gospel story is much more profound than that. An infinite, perfect, unchangeable, holy God has condescended to be with us. Not just to be with us, but to serve us. And Jesus says to us, you are welcome at my table. The last picture of Jesus that we see in the gospel, before he goes to the cross, what does he do? He, he strips his clothing off. Uh, he washes his disciples' feet. And he invites them where? To a table, to a meal. And this meal is all about what Jesus is going to do. He's going to sacrifice for them. He's going to serve them in the ultimate way. And that's our Savior. The way to become more merciful is to realize that we're all like Ruth. Uh, We've all blown it. We're all, uh, the promise was to Israel. We're outside of the promise. We're all spiritually broken. We're all spiritually hungry. We're all alone in life. We're really honest with ourselves. And Jesus says to us this morning, come to my table. You're welcome. Jesus says, there's no sin I won't forgive. There's no, there's no length I won't travel. Come to my table. Come if you're hungry. Come if you're broken. I'll serve you. Jesus condescends to us. And as we close then, a couple of applications. One is that we are called then to be a church that is filled with mercy. You know, starting next month, we are going to, uh, I'm going to start working and training deacons. We're going to nominate deacons in our church. We just elected elders. They've been installed and ordained. And now the next step is the de- deacons, deacon, a diaconate, men and women who are deacons in the church. What's the whole idea of deacons? Well, deacons, God is so concerned with mercy in the church that he's dedicated a specific group of officers that's, that's all they're in charge of. They're in charge of mercy. Uh, church without deacons has spot up kind of mercy ministries. But a church with a diaconate has a dedicated group of men and women who all they're doing is organizing, prayerfully thinking about and supporting people in need in the church and in their neighborhood. And next month, we're going to get started on a journey of having an organized system of people who are dedicated for, to showing mercy for people. Pray for that. Pray that the church would be more merciful. Pray that there would be officers in the church who have been specifically tasked 
for the purpose of mercy, so that mercy would flourish in our church. That's what's going to happen with deacons. Finally, live a life of mercy. Uh, Act in ways that reflect the gospel of Jesus. Open up your table to strangers. I love what one person said about the church. She said, uh, a church is like a family reunion where perfect strangers uh, crash this party and are welcomed. And people are so glad that they came. You know, it's a, the church should be this warm place. But as individuals, we should also extend our table to perfect strangers, people in need. And that, when we have that life of mercy, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to spread light to everyone around us. You know, they say that, scientists say that one candle, the human eye can see one candle three miles away in darkness. One candle. You might think, that's not a lot of light. But in a dark place, you can see it from three miles away. Act mercifully. You might say that's a small gesture by inviting people to your home, by giving them a meal, by entering to someone's story. But it spreads great light, especially in a dark place like L.A., would you be that light? Would our church be a city light? Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you're so kind to us. Thank you that your mercies are never ending. Thank you that you send Jesus to us, that you send Jesus to us and you invite us to your table. And not only do you heal us and forgive us, you bring us into a community. You lavish us with your love. You serve us in Jesus. Pray that we would be merciful people. Pray more than anything, we'd be a merciful church. Pray that there would always be room at our table. So we pray that we would be merciful because you're merciful. We pray that we would be like Boaz and Ruth. We pray that we'd hear stories upon stories of all that you're doing through us to extend your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.